You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Josh Overmeyer, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. How does it feel to not belong? I've always felt like an outsider, maybe my whole life. In fact, the feeling was so normal for me as a kid that I probably didn't even recognize it as such. Different, apart, alone. Maybe it was because my father died when I was eight. Maybe because I had a learning disability. Looking back, the answers are as much a mystery today as they were back then. But I didn't fit. I just didn't fit. I thought that it would get better in college, but it didn't. On Saturday mornings, every single person I knew would make the pilgrimage to the football stadium humming hail to the victors, leaving Ann Arbor almost completely empty, and I would be sitting in the Law Quad Library studying by myself. Matriculating to medical school thrust me into an immediate social group and status, yet it still didn't fit, as my colleagues in training were flexing their new identities, boldly proclaiming those two lonely letters perched at the end of their name, I was hiding from them. I made precious few friends in medical school. As a young practicing physician, I avoided the physician's lounge assiduously. Entering my 40s, I had given up on this childhood dream of finding my place in the world. Married with kids and family, I had subconsciously decided that your people, your community, is something you make, not something that you slide into frictionlessly. And then I discovered the personal finance, financial independence community, and everything changed. I finally found my people. For the first time in my life, I fit. Josh Overmeyer is a personal finance junkie who started out reading the blog Budgets Are Sexy, which he now calls his gateway drug. He created his own blog to share the things that have worked for him and more importantly, the things that have bombed spectacularly. Once he started taking personal finances seriously in 2010, he was able to increase his net worth from $150,000 in debt to over $300,000 on government jobs that paid between $40,000 and $75,000 per year. Josh, welcome to the Earn and Invest podcast. Wow, thanks for having me. You and I met first, if I remember correctly, at FinCon in 2018. Yeah, we met briefly there in Orlando. And I think I was like one of many people. I saw your face and I said, I know that guy. And it really took you by surprise that people knew who you were, didn't it? It really did. And I heard it so many times. I guess the shock must have worn off by the end of the week. But, oh, I know you from Twitter. (laughs) That's definitely something we are going to talk more about. But I want to go back to your childhood. Tell me, where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? What was it like growing up as Josh Overmeyer? I grew up in a little town called Winchester, Indiana. Graduated high school, went to Ball State University right there in Muncie, Indiana. Graduated with a degree in urban planning and development. Moved to Fort Myers, Florida upon graduation to be part of a really growing community. So let's talk about childhood. Did you have a close group of friends? I had a lot of friends, just nobody that I really hung out with a whole lot outside of school or school activities. I was involved with church as a kid. I was involved in dance and other activities like soccer or swim team. But outside of those individual seasons or those classes for dance, for example, I didn't hang out with them on the weekends or in the summer. It was kind of whatever group I was in at the time, that's who I was hanging out with. So it sounds like you had a lot of acquaintances, but maybe not the bosom buddy we think of when growing up as a kid. Yeah, for sure. And did that change as you got older and went to high school? Can you remember having a core group of friends that you spent a lot of time with, or was it more acquaintances like when you were younger? 
Yeah, I think it was more acquaintances. And did you find your relationships changed in college? College was a little different because I was in the urban planning program, part of the College of Architecture there. And it was a really difficult program to get into. Over 1,500 students apply and they accept 150. But then once you're in the program, almost all of your classes, at least half of your course load, are with the same students the rest of their four years there. I knew all these 30 or so people in my urban planning course load track. We really got kind of factioned up pretty quickly. You know, they were the cool kids. They were the group of us that called ourselves the misfits. A couple girls, myself and another guy. And we all trusted each other to do the work that we needed to do. We weren't going to you know, leave class early and go to penny pitchers at one of the local bars. <laughs> and so we just kind of fit. We didn't necessarily consider each other best of friends, but we were a good work team. Now, this term misfits, did that feel good? Was it something you took on with pride or was it more an explanation of the fact that you didn't quite socialize as much with the rest of the group? I think we branded ourselves the misfits and, you know, sort of wore as a badge of honor. We weren't one of the others. We were us. Did you feel like you had a lot in common with those kids besides the fact that they didn't fit in with the rest? Yeah, for sure. I mean, they were definitely more of the studious type of kids, and I had a lot of fun with them, but we weren't close friends, I wouldn't say. So after leaving college, for instance, these weren't lifelong friends that you were keeping in touch with and traveling across the country to see? No, I would say within a year or so, I probably haven't heard from them much at all. We follow each other on Twitter and stuff, but really no interaction. So in the backdrop of this, at what point did you discover the personal finance community? There was a whole lot of waste in my prior budgets. Not that I really ever budgeted, but there was a whole lot of waste in my spending, whether that be eating out way too much, which I still do, or I think I went to Best Buy every paycheck or so because there were a lot of gadgets and gizmos around the house that, you know, by the time you get them home, they're already yesterday's model. Realizing that I had some wiggle room in my budget, I was able to slowly start putting some money away so that I never really had that period again where I had to move back with mom and dad because I couldn't pay my bills on my own. Did living on $19,000 a year feel like a sacrifice or did it feel relatively comfortable? Surprisingly, it wasn't all that bad. $19,000 a year, I never, through that whole period, missed a payment, never had a late payment. But it was pretty much all of my income at the time to keep the mortgage current. I did have a little bit of spending money, mostly just to maybe go to the local high school basketball games. I was playing golf in the mornings with the old guys, the old retirees, and then applying for jobs in the afternoon. That was through two different stints of unemployment and then sort of the underemployment in between. Was it the underemployment that eventually led you to find Budgets Are Sexy, the blog that began your interest in personal finance? It was right around that time of the second period of unemployment. There just wasn't enough money going around. And so my job eventually phased out. Finding Budgets Are Sexy was probably, like I say, right around that time. And hey, this guy, this random guy on the internet, he's doing this. Why can't I at least start tracking? He had this Challenge Everything project for a couple of years. There's a lot of things that we just pay for, maybe don't realize a full benefit out of. And so finding a different way to save a few bucks on your cell phone, or maybe you don't have to have the full cable package. Maybe you can have the basic nowadays, you know, add a Netflix or Hulu or something like that. Different ways you can save a few bucks, start putting those dollars away, and it really starts to grow. What do you think really spoke to you? about J Money and the blog. Was it there a commonality between you two? Did you feel like you could understand the journey he was on? His journey started with buying this house randomly out of the blue and realizing, oh gosh, now I have all this debt. And my journey as well kind of started with buying a house. I also bought at the peak of the market. I know that J Money found himself underwater for a while. My journey had me underwater for 12 and a half years in total. You actually have met Jay Money since, haven't you, at FinCon? Yeah, I met him at the last two FinCons in Orlando and D.C., and also ran into him at the Playing With Fire event that Brad and Jonathan hosted in Richmond, Virginia, back in July. At the time when you discovered his blog, could you ever imagine that you'd be rubbing shoulders with and having conversations with the guy himself? No, I don't think I did. I did interact on the blog quite a bit back in those days, leaving comments. He's great. He was always quick to respond, but I don't know that I necessarily expected that to turn into a in-real-life friendship. At the beginning of this conversation, I mentioned that when I saw you for the first time at FinCon, I already knew your face and knew something about you from Twitter. Most of us start by looking at these blogs, listening to podcasts, and we're fairly passive consumers of the information. At some point, you became an active participant 
in this community, especially online. Do you remember when you took those first dives into participating online in these communities? Yeah, I know that I actually started my original blog back in November of 2015. It was just a free WordPress blog. The tagline was way too long. And so there's no way that anyone in their right mind would ever type out this combination of letters. So I really didn't have a whole lot of traffic. Of course, that gets discouraging. And so I just let it expire after the first year. And so it wasn't until Penny from She Picks Up Pennies kind of pressured me into explaining a tweet in more detail that I picked back up the blogging and wrote a post to explain this points and miles stacking offer that I had tweeted about. Just the fact that you bring up Penny means that you are already engaged in participating in the community even before you wrote a blog. At what point did you decide to jump in with Twitter and commenting? You know, when I saw you at FinCon, it wasn't your blog that I knew you for. It was your presence on social media and your being part of the community. So my interest is more in when did you start being an active participant, regardless of the creating content on a blog? probably in the late 2013, early 2014 timeframe, if I had to pinpoint it. I've had Twitter since 2012, but didn't really use it a whole lot. I don't know that Twitter back then was anywhere near what Twitter is today. So following some of the content creators, especially Jay Money and some of the articles that he would share. And this was even pre-Rockstar Finance before he created that aggregation site. That was really what kind of launched me full-fledged into the financial independence community because he was sharing these articles from various other bloggers from around the internet. Tell me, how did these online friendships feel different from other types of friendships you had had growing up, the ones you had in real life? Did it feel like it was a different type of experience? I think it definitely is a different type of experience. It's one thing to know someone and go to the same school or maybe have a couple of classes together. It's something else entirely to actually, in some ways, be in their pocket. If you're on their cell phone, they get a message from you tweet something right back or send a direct message right back to you. I don't know that I would necessarily call someone. We're in the 21st century now. People don't just call someone out of the blue, but you can send a quick tweet or a quick direct message or for some friends, even a text now where you know you wouldn't step back into the 1980s and make that phone call just to say something quickly. So I think technology has maybe made it uh, a different type of relationship than it even would have been a couple of decades ago. Is it safe to say that maybe some of these relationships were deeper than other friendships you had had, even though you hadn't met these people in real life? Oh, absolutely. Following and reading some of their deepest internal thoughts about their own journey, whether that be money or whether that be their careers or their family situations, by interacting with those posts or those tweets, I was acknowledging that I, first of all, had read their information that they're sharing and then provided either my input or my commentary on that. And then it sort of began the dialogue back and forth. And so it wasn't just, oh, hey, I read your blog post. It was, I didn't necessarily go through that exact same thing, but I've been through something similar and we share a common thread there. So you're getting to this point where you're forming these relationships, relationships that sound deeper maybe than the other kind of relationships you had had in real life. At some point you decided to start meeting people at gatherings and get-togethers. Was there any trepidation about standing face-to-face in front of these people that you had been interacting with online for so long? Strangely, no. I hadn't met anyone until I was taking a trip back in May of 2018. I took a trip to Los Angeles, Seattle, and Boston. While I was on a train from LA to Seattle, I started tweeting at some of my followers or some of my friends on, on Twitter that I new lived in the Seattle area. And I was able to meet up with Ty Roberts, who at the time was running Get Rich Quickish and later the founder of Campfire Finance. And so we actually did meet up for a couple beers, just meeting someone and realizing, man, this guy's just as nice and probably even nicer in, in person than I had already thought from our interaction on Twitter. Just really made me comfortable with the idea. It was pretty easy to finally meet up with someone. That experience has been repeated hundreds of times over as I've met other people at the FinCon, CampFi events, and other friendships that have developed out of both Twitter and big events. Have you generally found that your impressions online have been similar to what you felt about people when you met them in real life? Yes. And I would say that probably 99% of the time, people have exceeded my expectations of them. There's been a few jerks, and they were the ones that kind of had some heebie-jeebie feelings about just from either interactions online or Sometimes it's kind of rumors that I hear through through the community as well. 
I think it's always surprising to people who haven't had this experience before that if you're used to talking to someone online and reading their content and having deeper conversations with them, when you see them in real life, you just slide right into a conversation as if it was the middle of a sentence. And people don't realize that. Absolutely. And it's kind of funny, you know, when you finally meet someone in person, I think for me, one of the people at this most recent FinCon was a purple life. She and I have been friends on Twitter for over a year at that point and just immediately jumping into a conversation like we didn't even say hi. It was more like there there's purple. Obviously, you saw her purple hair. She saw me just ran up, gave a hug. And then you're right. We were in the middle of a conversation. So you've called yourself a super fan before of some of the people you followed. Any imposter syndrome when you met them in real life? No, and and I think imposter syndrome was something that I wrote about after the FinCon in 2018. To hear the word imposter syndrome come from some of the biggest names in this space, from a J.D. Roth to others, it really kind of shook me to my core. Like, these are the pros of pros. I shouldn't be feeling any imposter syndrome at all because we're just who we are. We're sharing our story. We're sharing our values and our beliefs, our experiences. There's nothing to feel like an imposter about. You're the expert of your life and your story. I couldn't relate to the imposter syndrome label. So you show up in 2018, the Florida FinCon, and people are recognizing you. Did it surprise you at that point? It did surprise me a little bit, but then I kind of thought back to, oh yeah, I've been interacting with Jay Money on his blog for seven years at this point. One of the more surprising ones when I met Tanya Hester from Our Next Life. I've interacted with her on Twitter for a couple of years, well before she even did the un- unmasking of her anonymous blogger persona. And so when she saw me, I just kind of called out, hey, Tanya. And she turned, she looked, and then she ran and almost tackle hugged me. It was, it was a fun moment. You and I, I think, had a similar trajectory in the sense that we both felt probably like newbies coming to FinCon 2018. I certainly felt like I just had touched the surface of knowing people, and certainly they didn't know me. I had the privilege of meeting you in 2018 and then seeing you again at FinCon 2019. And in my outside perspective, I feel like your confidence really grew. I mean, by 2019, you were then the head volunteer coordinator for FinCon. You were sponsoring a Plutus Award. And I really felt like when I saw you then, you had really come into your own. And I want to quote something you wrote on your blog that I think relates to the FinCon 2019. You said, I shed tears talking about refocusing and plans moving forward. I cried myself to sleep knowing that I never feel so much love from so many people all at once, something I am definitely missing in my daily life. That's a lot of emotion to express out there on the internet. And certainly, again, I feel like I connect with you in the sense that I didn't feel like I had those close relationships as a kid. This doesn't sound like the Josh you described growing up. Wow. Yeah, I'm kind of shedding a tear right now just hearing those words again. There's something special about turning that legitimate online relationship that we have with some friends online into a real-life friendship. And to be able to sit with someone even if just for a couple minutes, and share some of your deepest, darkest fears with someone you literally just a few hours earlier met for the first time in person. Thinking back right now to a conversation I had with Angela from Tread Lightly Retire Early, sitting by the pool on the Friday at FenCon, we had one of the deepest conversations I've ever had with anyone, and I literally just met her the day before. It kind of takes my breath away. One of the things I think people don't realize is that when you have these online relationships with people, it strips away almost all the senses, right? So you don't see them, you don't hear them, all you really see is what they've written. But that really condenses who we are. So when you actually meet someone in person, but you've been talking to them for a few years, they really have a great idea of what's inside of you, right? They see past all the physical, they see past the sound or tone of your voice because they already know what's inside of you. And I think people don't realize how powerful that is for people like you and I, when you all of a sudden show up on the scene and get this deluge of people who see you, maybe see you for the first time, it can be overwhelming. I have to admit my first FinCon was definitely an emotional experience. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. And 
I call myself an extroverted introvert. I'm a single guy living alone. Don't really consider any of my coworkers, friends. I actually, I work in the county north of where I live. So I'm pretty far removed from even where most of them live and stuff. So it's not something that I really have a whole lot of social interaction outside of work in my daily life. I hate to even use the word, but when I get in with my tribe, my community of people, I just feel this burst of energy and it can last all week if it's a FinCon, it can last all weekend if it's a Camp Fi, playing with fire events that I attended last year. I went to four of them, San Diego, Atlanta, Tampa, and Richmond, Virginia. I just felt like I was beaming. It was a whole lot of fun to be with those people and, and make new friendships every time. It seems to me that those feelings have had a profound effect on your life. And I want to bounce back to a blog post you wrote. And I believe it was probably sometime right after the FinCon 2018, and you titled it Shame. And you wrote there, I often feel like I live my life in shame. And I was amazed at how open you were. Talk to me a little bit about the feelings that made you write that post. I will remind you, you talked a little bit about your relationship status. You talked about shame with money, but to me, the words really seem to mean more to you. So that particular blog post, that was really just kind of trying to get into the, a lot of the ways that we feel shame about the way we spend our money. We have all these shoulds in our life, and should is such an awful word if you think about it. It's someone else's expectation of something that we're supposed to be doing. Any example you can think of with should, it's a rule, written or unwritten, that we're supposed to follow. And so should and shame, I think, in my mind are very similar. You're feeling shame because you should be doing something. No, you could be doing something else. Maybe if you had another opportunity to go back, you would do something else. But I don't think should should be a part of our conversations. Do you feel like this was something that you had felt all along, or was this an epiphany that had happened after this journey you had gone through learning about personal finance and becoming part of a community? Really, I think it's something I've always felt, but being part of the personal finance community and feeling like a really welcome and appreciated member of the community made it feel more comfortable to put that out there. I think it took a lot of bravery to write that post. And it suggests to me that you felt like you were in a place in the world where you'd be accepted for those opinions. Certainly. So I want to round this conversation out and talk about people who are new to this community. What would you tell an outsider about this community in general? If you think about the people who are posting their thoughts and their actions and their experiences on the internet for public consumption by anyone else on the internet, You've got to realize that these people are doing it for a reason. Some people are doing it to make a million dollars or however much they think they can make off of a blog. But a lot of people are really just sharing their journey, their experiences, their setbacks, their lessons that they've learned, hoping that I've already paid the cost for that expensive lesson that I learned, you know, in making a mistake and putting it out there so other people can avoid those same mistakes. A lot of what you'll read out there is all puppy dogs and roses, and it's sort of the best in this, something happens, retire early. And I don't know that it is a straight line journey like that for just about anyone. Know that people are coming from a place of helpfulness and trying to put that knowledge out there into the world. If and when you feel compelled to interact with those people, know that they're going to be honest and genuine and truthful back to you. And the more you communicate with them and other bloggers, the more you'll find yourself sort of coming from that same position that you have stories and experiences to share as well. It appears to me that you got involved with this community years ago when you found Budgets Are Sexy and probably was looking for information about personal finance. Looking at you today in 2020, I get the feeling you've gotten something completely different out of this experience than what you went into it for. Yeah, for sure. Trying to figure out what the heck am I supposed to do with my money is maybe the gateway for a lot of folks. But finding a real sense of community, real friendships, people I talk to on a daily basis, not just have a conversation once a month or something like that. These are true and genuine friendships. And I can't imagine my life right now without the people that I've met through this community. I was about to say, could you imagine when you hit enter on that first comment to Budgets Are Sexy, the difference between your life back then and your life today. 
Not a chance in the world. I don't think there's any way I would have realized that coming from $150,000 in debt, you know, this was still sort of coming out of the recession. I had a mortgage that was upside down on. I was in a new job, but still kind of precarious situation and even mindset. I think I was looking to find some right next steps to take so that I could dig out from this hole and at least be able to function without that kind of weighing on my psyche all the time to now where I'm in the pursuit of financial independence, potentially retiring early. You know, Mr. Market's done incredible things in that that time span, but putting money away and investing for my future has opened up a future that I never would have expected was even a possibility. And not only that, but have a calendar full of events and people to see and friends to interact with and podcasts to be guests on. I mean, it sounds to me like this is a very different life than you probably thought you were going to have back then. Absolutely. Thinking back since that first FinCon when I met you, I've been to two FinCons. I just got back last week from a ski FinCon, unofficial event with other financial bloggers. I've been to two Camp Fi events, both in Gainesville, since I can drive there here in Florida. I went to Jillian Johnsrud's event in Montana. I took a trip to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin to hang out at the Cabooses with blogger Miss Mizuma and another blogger met us there slowly sipping coffee. I've been to four Playing With Fire events. <laughs> it's kind of incredible that stacking both the personal finance knowledge and friendships and everything along with the sort of related travel hacking and the, the travel rewards that are out there have made it possible for me to to do all this stuff. And it's not setting back my financial journey in any way to take these long weekend or sometimes a week vacation to go visit with people and gain even more knowledge and, and friendships. It's kind of a virtuous cycle. I like that you said virtuous cycle because I was going to say one of the funny things is if you hang out with personal finance nerds like us, you build all these relationships and you do all these things. But we also have in the back of our mind that we want it to be affordable and not bankrupt us. So you end up having a lot of the fun at a lot less of the price. And, you know, these get togethers are fun and wild and exciting. I wouldn't say we're missing out on anything just because we're not spending money in the same way. No, for sure. Do you think you have to be a content producer to be part of this community? I know that you've come at the blog twice. I know it's something you're involved with now, but do you have to create content to be part of this community? No, I don't think so. But even being a part of the Twitter community, you're creating content maybe in 280 characters at a time. I like to joke that my blog is for any thought I have that's more than 280 characters that I don't want to just put out in a single tweet. I need the space to explain a little bit more in depth what that thought was about. And you said all of these get-togethers and meetups and conferences you've gone to in the future, are you going to continue at this pace? And why? What's the fun of going to all these things? I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to keep up this pace because I'm running out of vacation time. <laughs> but over the last year or so, I really tried to take advantage of any kind of long weekend I have. Being able to get away. I went to New York City over Veterans Day in 2018 because I was hoping to meet up with Dumpster Doggy, who was also in town that weekend, as well as Zero to Fire and turned out that Felicity from Fetching Financial Freedom were there, along with the Lux Strategist. Here I am just naming off all of these random people that are Twitter friends of mine, and a couple of them I hadn't even met at that point. But being able to get together, had a meal right near the, the Flatiron Building with the Lux Strategist, Zero to Fire, and Felicity. It was just such a great time, spent the afternoon with them, and then just acted like a tourist for the for the next day or so before I flew back. These are true and genuine friendships. I try to get together with folks whenever I can, even if it's a couple of months ago, I drove over to the other side of Florida, about a five-hour round trip. But Lisa Duke, who I'd met at the Camp Fire in Gainesville, who's also been at the last couple of FinCons, who also attended the Tampa Playing With Fire event, who also attended the Atlanta Playing With Fire event. She was hosting her local Choose FI group, and they were talking real estate that day. I'm not a real estate investor at this point. I do consume some of the podcasts. Chad Carson's book, who I consider a friend. And, it, you know, it's it's overwhelming to think that all of these people are my friends, believe that they consider me a friend. And, uh, you know, we get together and hang out. Doc, I know at the time we're recording this, I'll see you in two weeks in Cincinnati at the Economy Conference. And I'm sure this will come out after that. I'm going to see Jillian there. I'm going to see Julian from Rich and Regular there. It's So many of these people are my friends. And it's awesome any chance we get to hang out. It really does pull me back a little bit to the introduction. The introduction was my story, but I feel like we share parts of this story, this idea of never knowing where you fit in and then all of a sudden finding a 
place. And for me, it's like this big exhalation. It's like, ah, okay, I finally found it. And I don't know if you know what that feels like until you've joined a community like this and feel embraced. But I can definitely tell from your story that you feel that embrace and that comfort. And I connect with that. I connect with your story for that reason. Yeah, definitely. I want to talk about your future a little bit. Do you have a bucket list? And if so, what's on it? I don't know that I necessarily have a bucket list. It's funny for a guy that's got a degree in city planning and has done planning work for his whole career. I don't do a whole lot of planning in my personal life. And I think a lot of planners are guilty of that. We use all our planning muscle nine to five, Monday through Friday. So as I mentioned, I am working towards financial independence and, and possibly retiring early. If everything works perfectly in the markets and we're probably overdue for correction at some point, looks like I could retire in my low to mid forties. And I think that'd be awesome. Now, I don't know that I'm necessarily going to step away from work. I do enjoy some of what I do. I don't know that I necessarily enjoy working in the public sector and having every local taxpayer basically think that they're my boss, whether or not they pay my salary is another discussion entirely. My job in local government, I'm a floodplain manager. I make sure that new development is in compliance with the National Flood Insurance Program to help reduce risk, to help save lives. And people that visit Southwest Florida through most of the year don't realize we're right on the Gulf of Mexico. We've got a couple of rivers. It's not just sunny and 80 degrees every day like it is this time of year. It can be a totally different situation during our rainy season, during hurricane season, which coincide at the same time. And just helping people understand those risks is what I do. And it does kind of weigh on me because I realize, understand, have to communicate this risk, whereas other people are just completely foreign to this concept or this even reality. I don't know that I really have plans to continue in this work, but there's some options out there. It sounds like you're like me. I got to the point, realized I didn't have to work anymore, but I did see some good in parts of my job. And in fact, a good deal of my last few years was trying to figure out how to whittle that job down to only the pieces I liked and get rid of everything else. And I think it's an important question because if you are interested in early retirement or at least slowing down, the big question becomes what then? So you got to start yeah. thinking about what your purpose and identity will lead you to. Is that something you spend a lot of time thinking about? It's something I'm starting to think about as I near that period when it may be possible to step away. Part of me thinks I could be a successful entrepreneur, but when you're working a steady government job with good benefits and a payday every other Friday, it's very hard to walk away from that. And so even though I have some money put away, it would be difficult to step away and you know, sort of create entrepreneurial consulting business on the side and try to make a go with that. Josh, you could always start a podcast. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I uh, struggle with putting my words together uh, in a coherent fashion. Well, I feel like you're very coherent today. So let's end up with the questions we always ask. What's up next in your life and where can we find you? Well, what's up next right now is I'll be at the Economy Conference March 7th. And after that, I'm helping put together the agenda for the Florida Floodplain Managers Association Conference. So I am staying actively involved with with other floodplain managers. I'm on the board of directors for that statewide organization. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at jovermeyer one That's J-O-V-E-R-M-Y-E-R-1. This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Josh Overmeyer. That's a wrap. Are you ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the Earn and Invest podcast? Well, now you can engage in our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.earnandinvest.com. That's E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T.com. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I dot com backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is... There's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately 
that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, everybody. We're back with Paul Desmond Adams. He's a former national radio host, a digital media and marketing consultant, and a peak performance strategist. He's also a lifelong student of personal development. He runs a podcast called The Key, in which he's a co-host. Paul, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Well, The Key is all about personal development, but I partnered with a licensed psychotherapist who also helped me deal with some internal blocks. I knew all the right things to do. I just didn't do them. It was like this inertia in me kept me from moving forward. He helped me. So what you'll notice is I love science, and we look at personal development from a science point of view. Like, is this research? Does this really work? And why? And so that's what we do with our podcast, help people do what they know they need to do and they just can't do it. Yeah. As I get older, I realize that mindset over skills, right? I used to think Mm -hmm. if I could just learn the right skills, Mm -hmm. I would be fine. And I'm starting to realize that mindset plays such a large role in what we accomplish. Yeah, it absolutely does. And even with the right cognitive mindset, there's this other part of you that you're not always cognitive that keeps you from doing what you know you should be doing, even have the right attitude about doing. I do that where I sit down, do something, and then I'll get distracted with something else. And then I'm like, oh, why didn't I do that earlier? (laughs) So we're here today, obviously, not to talk about your podcast, although I'm sure we could Mm -hmm. do that for quite a while. But you caught my eye on Facebook. We're Facebook friends. And you have been putting out, I guess I would say, some stunning posts about Mm -hmm. coronavirus and COVID. And the reason why I use the term stunning is because they're very detailed and well thought out. Tell us a little bit about how you started putting these posts together. It all came out about, I'd say three weeks ago, I saw a lot of people posting information about what was happening in 
Italy and how we were tracking the same way in real numbers. So Italy, though, you're seeing this exponential growth in the number of people getting the coronavirus in Italy. And our numbers were tracking the same with Italy, but about two to three weeks behind. I initially was like, wow, that's it was scary. And it looks intimidating when you see those two exponential ramps going up. But then I was like, wait a minute, Italy's got 60 million people. We got 330 million people. I mean, you can't compare those two things. So I just simply started looking at how many people per million have the coronavirus. But then I also realized, well, a lot of the people are already healed or unfortunately have passed. And so I only want to look at active. So that's how I narrowed this all down and got to this place now where I'm posting on this every day. And so, you know, I try to make it very clear. I have no agenda in this. I try not to speculate on what this means. I just say, here's what we have and here's why we have the data we have. Yeah, before we dive into the numbers, I will second that. I've noticed that you are very careful <laughs> about not giving specific opinions politically or even scientifically about what the data means above and beyond how is the trend going? That is very intentional. I had a family member post something political and I, I immediately said, I keep politics out of this. We can talk politics 37 billion other places. But on this one, people are scared. People don't need to be anxious, but we do need to be cautious. That's the other thing I do is I'm not out there as a naysayer to go, oh, these stats are all wrong. They're hyping it. No, the stats are right as best we can you know, determine. And we do need to be cautious. So I strongly encourage people to follow the medical advice that we're all getting. I want to talk a little bit about the granularity of your data. And I guess the best way to go about that is to Talk about today and yesterday, especially today was slightly different than the trends you've been watching. Tell us about a little bit of the trend reversal and how you're using this as a key indicator. I've been focused on how quickly we're increasing the number of active cases per 1 million people in the U.S. So I'm staying focused on that. We know it's going up every day, but is it going up at the same rate or is it an increasing rate or decreasing? And because it's already per 1 million, if we see a 15% increase every day, that's exponential because it's 15%, you know, you deal with finances. So we're really looking for that number to go down dramatically. Uh, We've been watching that go down. And then last night, I have friends who text me at night because the number rolls over. And last night, friend, oh, you're going to go over your number. And I try to remind them that we can dig into some of the different anomalies we may see or some of the, the lack of data that we may have. But I I try to remind people that, you know, if we have one day that goes over a little bit, it's not the end of the world. Things aren't trending back up and getting worse again. It means something happened in there because I keep a five-day trend as well because that takes those wobbles out of there. And our five-day is still going down. But yes, yesterday we saw that number go up by, what was it, one-tenth or or two-tenths approximately of a percent. So not a big factor, but definitely something we don't want. We want the number to go down. We don't even want to stay the same because that's still exponential increases. For the non-scientifically oriented people, it's kind of important to point out we are talking about percent changes in increase, right? So we're saying, is there a 15% increase or a 16% day-to-day increase? So the total numbers are increasing no matter what, Mm -hmm. but your point is, as we see the percent increase decline, meaning that there are still more people getting sick, but the number of people getting sick is declining compared to the number of new people getting sick yesterday. So it's a very granular number. How did you decide to (laughs) stick with that indicator? Because it seemed to be the most relevant to me. Just so you know, my background, I've been in broadcasting for decades, but prior to that, I worked as a statistical process control, a process engineer at Honeywell. So don't blame them if I got something wrong, (laughs) but that's what I did. And so I did statistical process controls. I looked at what do you need to look at to really measure this and what has a correlation with the outcome. And so as I looked at this, it just came about because as I did the numbers, I would think to myself, well, that doesn't really capture what's really happening here. And the best thing that I could do was compare us to Italy on that level, because that's what I wanted to do. One, I wanted to get out the population difference, right? And then I wanted to look at 
what as a percentage are we increasing every day? Because that's really what matters day to day. That's how I ended up with that number. I think it's a good indicator of where we're going day to day. And especially when you look at the five-day trend, it is trending down. Now, here's what's going to happen just really quick so people understand. We are going to see that decrease what I always say is the decrease in the increase is confusing, but we're going to see that decrease slow down as we start to hit the peak because it's just naturally going to do that on a bell curve as you get near the top, that decrease, that increase decreases. So sorry to confuse, but that's normal. That's what we're going to see. And I keep telling people that don't be alarmed if we see this stall out a little bit. That's what's going to happen. That's what's happened in Italy. Italy, so you know, they're about two, three weeks ahead of us. They're sitting right around two to three percent increase. So they're still increasing daily, but at two to three percent instead of us, we're at 13.6 as of yesterday. So someone looking at your post saying, who is this Paul Desmond Adams guy? He's not an (laughs) epidemiologist. He's not Not a doctor. At least you would say, but statistical modeling is something that Mm -hmm. you're intimately familiar with. Yes, absolutely. And I keep it to that. So I keep telling people, follow the medical experts advice. I am not a medical expert. I'm at their mercy as well. I'm hoping that they're giving us good advice. And I think they're hoping that they've got it right because we don't know. Here's what we won't know really anything about this until a year from now when we can finally look at all that collected data and go, aha, that's why it did this. But then it's too late. You're also pretty clear on the idea that there are lots of unknowns. So a Mm. naysayer could be looking at your models and going, well, but a lot of cases aren't being reported. A lot of people aren't being tested. This is something you've thought deeply about. Yeah. So I encourage people to always ask questions. If you see a gap somewhere in here, if you see something I'm not seeing, again, this is a, I wouldn't even say it's a hobby of mine. It's not even at that level for me. It was just an interest at this moment in time. So please tell me if I'm missing something because there's a very good possibility I am. So I'm open to that. I've had some people challenge me on that. And I, when I explained to them that None of the data we have right now that anybody has is going to be 100%. I don't even know if it's statistically significant at this point. So all I'm doing is looking at the data we have, acknowledging that it's not sufficient, and trying to determine, are we seeing something from this? There are so many variables. I'll give you the example for today. We saw the number just edge up by, what did I say, two-tenths of a percent. So I immediately like, okay, so what's going on? Did we see an increase in testing? Well, we didn't. What we saw was Louisiana had a backlog of testing, and it was finally released. They got caught up because you got those three elements. Can people get the tests? Can I get access to the test? Will I pass the screening? How stringent the screening? All those things. And then once I've taken the test, it's got to be processed. And so you've got those three different things that could slow things down. Louisiana, they saw the lab slow down. And then all of a sudden, they busted through a big log jam of stuff. And that came out. And it looks like, oh, my gosh, things, no, things aren't going crazy right now. That's the important thing to tell people all the time as well. Because the numbers look like they're going down, that's confirmed, measured, tested people. That doesn't mean that the numbers really are going down. It seems almost futile, but it's all we got. So we do what we can with what we have. Yeah, that comes through very clearly. Good. You've kind of said very clearly in a number of your posts, this is what we can measure. So I'm giving yep. you a snapshot of the things we can measure. Yeah. We all know the things we can't measure that may, may be affecting the system, but this is the best we got. I think I'd use the analogy one time. It's like chasing down mice in a dark barn, right? I, I don't know if that was in one of my posts or I shared with somebody else and with a little flashlight. I've got a little pen light, very narrow beam, and I'm looking, oh, there's one over there. Well, does that mean I have one mouse in the barn? No, it means my pen light happened to catch one mouse at that moment in time. What we really need to do is turn all the lights on, but that's very expensive. And then resource-wise, when it comes to the labs, next to impossible just to testing. And then of the people who are negative, when do you retest them? In a week? Well, there's going to be a missing thing. We're in that week too. Is it every day? You're still going to have gaps. So you just have to take the data you have and try to figure out, is it statistically significant for us? And if it's not, accept that.
Let's talk a little bit about the community interaction. I'm looking at today's post. You've been putting out daily posts and most mm-hmm. of your posts get at least 20 or so comments, somewhere around 10 shares, a bunch of likes. How has the community changed the way you talk and report this data? You had mentioned that you ask people to challenge you. Have you changed the way you're reporting this data mm-hmm. or thought about it based on people's interactions with you? I have, actually. So some of it comes off-site, like I'll get a text message or DM from somebody, a, a Facebook message from somebody asking about something. And so some of it comes that way. I had a friend of mine who kept asking me about, but what about the deaths? What about the death rate? So I posted a little bit about that yesterday. I had another person who, who said, well, you're misleading people because we're not testing enough people. Some people have an agenda. They have a political agenda or they have a bias of some sort. So this person challenged me on that, and I knew there was something emotional going on here because she had said that in Arizona, they were discouraging doctors from testing people, just treat anybody who had the symptoms as if they had the virus. And she said, that's just wrong, and we're missing all this. And I said, I'd love to get the source for that. Legit, I wanted to know the source. I don't live in Arizona. I'm not reading the Arizona newspapers. So anyway, she's just boom, 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 boom. Before I could type a response to her first post, uh, I got like five more. So I went offline because I do know personal development stuff. I know how people are. And I said, hey, I'm sorry if you misunderstand. My goal is not to mislead people. I'm just trying to give people information. I don't know where you are, if you have family members who are sick or what the situation is, but here's my agenda. My agenda is just let people know that here's the data. Let's see if we can find something hopeful in there, but let's not be unrealistically hopeful. So, and that helped a ton. And that was the end of it. And I knew right away, take it offline. Don't do this publicly because it won't work well. And I wanted to acknowledge that she may be scared. She may be scared. And she's worried that people are not going to be cautious enough if I sugarcoat it. And I'm trying not to. So now what I've done since then, I keep saying these are confirmed or tested, you know, the confirmed active per million. I say things like that so that I do acknowledge that this is only the confirmed number. The real numbers are higher. I've noted also that there is a lot of positive reaction, too. Mm -hmm. I'm just looking at today's post. Steve Olson said, love the added state breakdown today. That's helpful info. Thanks. Amanda Dubet or Dubay said, I appreciate you posting these statistics and then breaking it down for us. Denise Damati said, thank you so much for doing this each day. It helps me to stay grounded. I get the feeling that people are tuning in every day and looking at the numbers or even maybe waking up early and checking their feed to see what's going on. I woke up this morning and had a friend I'm on the East Coast. He's on the West Coast. He texts me, you know, like at one in the morning, my turn. Man, I so appreciate this. I look forward to it every day. I've had multiple people, people I haven't heard from in a long time, even though we're Facebook friends, texting me and reaching out to me and just saying, man, I don't even watch the news. I just look at your post. Now, I'm not advocating that because I may have gaps. But I will say that I've seen a mixture of things. One, people either really appreciate you being somewhat optimistic or they're feel fearful of your optimism. Like they don't want you to be optimistic because it will invalidate their fear. And so I don't want to invalidate anyone's fear, but I do want to take the real data and say, do you need to be as fearful as you are? Be cautious. Just don't need to be anxious or fearful. But some people, they just don't want you to be positive. But I think I've kind of, I understand that if you let the organic community address it for you, it usually takes care of it. And like I said, with the one person, I went offline, messaged them, and there was no embarrassment. There was no putting them in their place or anything. I had no desire to do that. Just address what their concern was. Another comment, Robert Graves Jr. said, thanks for the analysis and breakdown. I can't wait to see the light at the end of the tunnel in your Mm. posts. Keep up the great work. I'm going to ask you to go off script a little here. Do you (laughs) care to give any opinions of where Mm. we're headed and where things are going? About a week ago, I was thinking, this was about the time the president said we would probably peak in deaths right around Easter. And I was thinking we might peak around Easter, but then the deaths obviously would peak after that a number of days, unfortunately. I'm now starting to think as I watch what's happening in Italy and Spain, I'm realizing that as we flatten the curve, we extend the peak out. So the peak's less discernible because it's not this giant spike. 
but the peak lasts longer and you'll have that wobble up there at the top. That might last three, four, five days. But then you also got to realize we're pre-peak right now and we're all locked in our houses. And now after peak, we're going to be the exact same thing, but the other side of it. So it'll be getting better, but it doesn't mean we're at any less risk of catching this virus on the other side. So if you think about a bell curve, we're on the left side of it right now, and then we'll be on the right side, but still just as many people per million infected. I was thinking Easter, to answer your question, I was thinking Easter we would peak, but now I'm thinking maybe the week after Easter, somewhere in there, but I don't know if it's going to be that discernible when the peak is. We'll just suddenly see, we'll see the wobble, and then we'll start to see a downward trend. So tell me how this has changed you. You've obviously got a lot of people reading and interested. Do you see a future job here? Do you (laughs) see maybe new professional activities? Clearly, you have a way of presenting this data engagingly at a time when people are really hungering for it. That's well said. I don't see that. I, I came out of that and went uh, that statistical process control and went into radio. I'm a performer. I'm, when I was a little kid, I did magic tricks and I wanted to be on a stage and entertain people. I really ultimately want to make people's lives better. That's, that's always been the driving thing for me. And I think I can do that just by telling people like, it's like letting your kid pet a cat. Like, you know, if they're scared of the cat, you could take their hand and go, no, the kitty's okay. You can pet the kitty, but be respectful of the kid. He don't pull his tail. So you do those kind of things. And that's what I feel these stats are doing for people. It's like, don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. I know I, I have one person who messaged me and said, hey, can you help me explain this to my mom? I'm sharing it with her. She is so scared right now. And I tried to tell her, I said, she shouldn't be scared, but she should certainly be respectful of the situation, be cautious and that. So no, I don't want to do statistics. I have a background in digital marketing. So I do A-B split testing on ad campaigns pains and things like that. So I get the stats in there. But ultimately, what I love doing is what I'm doing with you, what you've given me the privilege of doing. And that's just sharing with people what information we have and letting them know that, you know what, life's hard, but ultimately it is getting better for each one of us. And we don't have to be anxious. Yeah, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on is we hear so much negativity about Mm -hmm. social media, but I think your posts are one of those prime examples of how democratizing social media can be beneficial. And one of the things you seem very careful about is presenting data in clear and unbiased ways. So it definitely caught my eye as one of the people who is doing something new beneficial and innovative in this really interesting time we're going through. I'm kind of intimidated by the way you described it because it makes me feel like I've got some lofty place to hold on to. And that's the beauty of where I am. I'm a layperson in this space. I mean, somewhat, I have past experience in it. I have no agenda. I'm not trying to convince anybody that the president is not doing enough or that the governor is or that this person is. I just don't have an agenda there. Now, I do have a bias, but I don't share it in there. And I try to filter it out. I know Facebook, here's the thing, Facebook's shutting down a lot of people who are posting bad information, misleading information, all the social media platforms, they don't want to be sued later on saying, you guys, you gave this guy a a voice and he led all these people astray and this many more got sick. I don't want to do that. And uh, each day I wonder, because I'm very obvious, I'm talking about stats and I'm sure Facebook's got an algorithm that checks popular. I don't know if my post, one of the more popular ones, it definitely garners a lot of attention in my circles. I feel good about it. I just have to know that I didn't do anything that misled anybody to the best of my knowledge. Paul Desmond Adams, thank you for coming on the Earn and Invest podcast. If people are interested in listening to The Key, what is the best way for them to do that? Very best way is to go to masterthekey.com. Always have the latest episode there and an opportunity to subscribe in your favorite podcasting app. I appreciate you putting out those daily posts. It's a perfect example of someone who's out there spending their time and energy presenting information that's helpful and valuable. And clearly you're doing it without any gain. I appreciate your posts and I'm happy to have you on the show. Have a great day. Thanks, Doc. You too. This has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Josh Overmeyer. That's a wrap. I'm going to do that again. <laughs> Hold on one second.
dun, 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 dun. Yeah. <laughs> but I do believe this is your story to tell. And it's a, it's an eloquent, interesting, wonderful story. Like when I see you, um, I see someone who has really embraced this community and you always bring yourself purely and openly into it. And I think that's of real value. Yep. That's, that's how I feel. Any questions about the podcast? I don't think so. You know, I've listened to darn near 80 of these so far. (laughs) And you're still not sick of my voice. Well, you don't talk that much and definitely neither did Paul. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.